Quick review first, where we've come. And I think we've got a little overall chart here to start with. There we go. Um, We started with where there's one Catholic church, which basically means one universal church. That was the beginning. We talked about how the first 200, 250 years of the church, the church grew a lot, though periodically under persecution, not having official status in the Roman Empire, it grew a lot, and there were, were a number of reasons for that. We talked about how the work of the Holy Spirit was a norm during that time. Then we talked about how when the Roman Emperor became a Christian and made Christianity the official religion of the empire in 313, that began to change everything in a whole lot of different ways and presented whole new challenges to the church And one of the things that came out of that was a real decline in the movement of the Holy Spirit or openness to the movement of the Holy Spirit or understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit that came about over a really long time, over a number of many centuries. But there was a reduction over time of that thing. We talked about how in about the year 1000, 1050, 1050 or so, the church split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, and we ended up with what was called the Roman Catholic Church, which means the Roman Universal Church, and then there was what was called the Eastern Church, or which more commonly in the United States is called the Orthodox Church. And uh, then we talked about how out of a period in the medieval times of great corruption and many abuses uh, in the church, we had eventually the Protestant Reformation. We talked about different movements that emerged out of the Protestant Reformation, the Anabaptists being the, the, the sort of uh, folks like the Mennonites, uh, the Lutherans, uh, which you will be very well acquainted with here. Um, the Calvinists, which would be sort of the Reformed church groups of churches and some of the Presbyterians, and then the Anglican or the Episcopalian church. And the Anglican church was the only one of the movements coming out of the Protestant Reformation that came out for reasons not theological, but for more political reasons. And in consequence, that movement then split up in a whole bunch of different ways over a period of time. Out of that came um, significantly for our story, and I hope you can hang on to this, the Quaker movement, which was unlike any of the other movements in a number of very important ways. Um, And this is going to be important, come back later as being very important. Then we had the Puritans, who eventually became the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and the Baptists. And we talked a little bit about how among that group, as well as among the, uh, the other group, the Methodists, who also came out of Anglicanism, um, a new theology, a new way of understanding the Bible arose in the mid-1800s called dispensationalism, which divided the Bible up into like eight dispensations or eras or epics, and kind of put it, had a very definitive view of there's 
this part of the Bible only applies to this period of time, and this part of the Bible only applies to that period of time, and also had a very distinct view of the role of Israel in God's cosmic plan, uh, made Israel the center and not the church. The church is not the center, but Israel. The physical uh, nation of Israel is the center of God's plan, according to dispensationalism. And then we talked about how out of the Methodist movement arose in the mid-1800s a new movement called the Holiness Movement, which began to introduce a new conversation into the wider church. For the first time in many centuries, they began to talk about the need for an experience with the Holy Spirit. And for them, the, the need of the experience of the Holy Spirit was so that you could be made holy. And they believed that you could have this experience with the Holy Spirit where he would render you sinless. I, I don't know how they managed to work that out with real people um, <laughs> over a period of time. <laughs> um, but that was kind of how, what they were looking for. And they, they, were, they had the idea, and this is very critical, that you became a Christian, and that was a work of the Holy Spirit, but then there was what they called a second work of grace, or a second encounter uh, that was life-changing from God, from the Holy Spirit, that would then you know, bring you into a state of perfection or holiness. And so with that, there would came this great hunger for more of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us up to the end of the 1800s. And as that century was coming to a close, there were a lot of people, and in most particularly among the holiness group of churches, um, that had an anticipation that God was about to do something big in the world as the new century began. Um, and people began praying and looking for that to happen and uh, kind of focusing their expectation on that. So the story tonight begins with a very obscure, small, out-of-the-way Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, run by a man named Charles Parham. Charles Parham was a holiness preacher who became convinced that the second work of grace from the Holy Spirit was not about holiness or being made holy or being made perfect, but was about being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do signs and wonders, and most particularly to pray in a language that you hadn't learned yourself. In other words, speaking in tongues. He believed that there was this second work of the Holy Spirit um, that was possible based on his reading of the New Testament and that the sign of this work of the Spirit would be that you would speak in tongues. But nobody had experienced it up to that point. So this was something, a new idea he was teaching. We're talking about a very small Bible school. I'm talking you know, less than 50 students, you know, a, a group that could meet in one classroom together. And as it happened, on December 31st, 1900, New Year's Eve, his little group was gathered together 
praying together, seeking what they called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In other words, this second encounter with the Holy Spirit. And just shortly after the stroke of midnight, in the very first minutes of what would become the 20th century, a young woman named Agnes Osman began to speak in tongues. And then over the next several days, many others of that school had similar experiences. And what they didn't realize was that that was the beginning of the most incredible, powerful move of God in the whole history of the church. What is going to come out of that obscure location is absolutely astounding. So tonight, our verse for the night is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And sort of the theme that begins to take place in this 20th century is that the, the power of the church to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, to the resurrection of Jesus, comes back online in a very big way, in a way that has not been seen since the time of Constantine. So what happened was, of course, uh, Charles Parham had this school. Now, Charles Parham was an eccentric, he was a loner, and he was a racist. And there was a black holiness preacher from Texas, a black man who was one-eyed, who heard about what was happening at Charles Parham's school, and he asked to come and be a part of it. And his name was William Seymour. And Charles Parham wouldn't let William Seymour sit in the class with the rest of the white students. But he said, we'll open the windows, and you can sit outside and listen in. And... Lest you feel sorry for Brother Seymour, God had the last laugh on this one. <laughs> so, Brother Seymour sits out there and takes in all of this, and he becomes convinced that even though this new idea is coming from a, a despicable man, <laughs> that is still true. <laughs> and... So he, he uh, starts talking about the same idea, that there's this baptism in the Spirit that you can have, and you can have an experience with the Holy Spirit, and you'll speak in tongues, and you'll be empowered to do ministry. So he had some friends in California, in the Los Angeles area, who invited him to come and speak to them about what he was learning. So... Um, this took place now in 1906 that Brother Seymour went to Los Angeles. So you can see there's a little bit of gap. It's six years had gone by. So uh, it had been a couple of years before that that Brother Seymour was at Parham School. So it was still a pretty small unknown thing. Only in sort of a few holiness circles had anybody heard of any of this. So Brother Seymour goes out to visit his friends in Los Angeles and uh, they started meeting in a house on Bonnie Bray Street. 
which is in the city of Los Angeles. And he began talking to them about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And within a short period of time, different ones in the group began to actually have powerful experiences with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. And they also began to see other kinds of miracles. They began to see prophetic words and visions and and healings and so forth all started happening in, in this thing. Now, you have to remember it's 1906. Air conditioning had not been invented yet. And so through the spring and summer, and this kind of got started within a day or two, depending on just like where you want to peg the beginning of it, of April 12th, 1906. So it's uh, Southern California, April, May, June. They're meeting at Bonnie Bray Street. And these people are having powerful experiences and they're making a lot of noise uh, about it. They're not like quietly, you know, thank you, Jesus, and whispering. They're yelling. Now, for one thing, a lot of them are African-Americans, and so they're expressive to start with. And it's a powerful experience. Nobody was really acquainted with this. So everybody on the street hears this tumult, and they all come out to watch, because what else are you going to do? There's no radio, there's no television, so, you know. (laughs) If there's a fire, that's your entertainment for the week, so... You know, they're all out there on the street. Well, what proceeded to happen pretty soon was that they had huge crowds on the street in front of this house. And they began to speak to people and preach to people from the porch of the house. And people would come and stand there all day long and through the night to see what was happening, to watch what was happening, to be a part of this thing. And... As people started coming, some of them for curiosity's sake, the Holy Spirit began falling on different people in the crowd. Some of them, before they'd even gotten up the street, as they're like coming up to find out, the Holy Spirit is falling on them before they even get to hear anything, before they've heard anything happening, you know, uh, before they even know what this is, um, they're being overwhelmed by the power of God and falling down in the streets and um, having healings and different other things. And of course, it just spreads. And it particularly spreads among a lot of the holiness churches. And so pretty soon, a lot of white people from the white holiness churches also started coming into this black neighborhood to see what was going on here and to be a part of it. And eventually, uh, the... The, uh, the porch of the house collapsed. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the, the, the crowds were, be, it was becoming a kind of a, a crowd control problem. I mean, this is people's neighborhood, you know. Um, and they found an old abandoned church that had been turned into a stable on a street called Azusa Street that would let them use, use it. And so they got this, this church, this old church building that hadn't been a church building for a while. It had, it had been a stable, in this, and the man who ran the stable lived upstairs, and then there was a stable downstairs, and they made that into a uh, meeting place. And uh, 
Brother Seymour and his family lived upstairs, and they ran the meetings downstairs. And uh, these meetings, once they got started at Azusa Street, they didn't stop until 1915. And what I mean when I say they didn't stop, I mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they started a meeting that lasted for nine years that never stopped. And it was just continual, people coming and going, people coming and going to be a part of what happened there. And it was kind of a continuation of what had happened on the street, just incredible manifestations of the power of God. Um, as people were coming there, people began experiencing uh, healing, prophecy, words of knowledge, speaking in tongues, visions, dreams, just the whole range of all the signs and wonders that you can think of uh, from the New Testament all started happening. And this created a huge uh, response because remember, everybody's like keyed up. They're all thinking God's about to do something. And this thing happens then. And uh, then William Randolph Hearst, who ran the Los Angeles Times, or one of the big Los Angeles papers, I'm not sure I've got my name right, but it was William Randolph Hearst, got news of this. And he started running articles about, isn't this, you know, something, the, how, these, uh, uh, how these people are being carried away by their religious enthusiasm. So he meant it to be sort of negative coverage of what was happening over on Azusa Street. But, you know, the next best thing to good coverage is bad coverage. <laughs> and... Uh, the result of his newspaper articles was even more people started coming. And many people who came to scoff or to criticize or to investigate and journalists and whatnot were themselves overwhelmed by God's power when they went there and turned like in an instant from a skeptic into a believer. And the interesting thing is during these years, if, if you did manage to see Brother Seymour, he would usually be in prayer... Uh, he would like kneel in, on the benches because all they had in there were benches. It was just wooden benches in the place. He would kneel behind a stack of cardboard boxes and pray. And sometimes he would put the cardboard box over his head or if a box wasn't available, he put a paper bag over his head. And I think probably partly so he wouldn't get distracted, but also so people wouldn't be distracted by him by the fact that he only had one eye, that, you know, whatever. He didn't want people focusing on him. He didn't want this to be about him. Um, and that's probably has something to do with why God used him <laughs> in the way that he did. And uh, so um, people started coming. Now, one of the other interesting things that happened in these meetings is that because it was in Los Angeles, there were people there coming and going from all over the world. And so people started coming very early on who were from other cities in the United States and also from other countries around the world. As they heard about this thing, they went to see it. And many of those people 
had similar experiences and then took them back. So for example, there were some people who went from Chicago to Azusa Street and you know, within a year's time, they were, there was a big Azusa Street prayer meeting happening in Chicago and the same would be true of, of almost all the major cities across America. Uh, just spread all over the country as people were coming and getting this experience and being a part of it and then going back where they came from. So it spread all over. And there were a couple other really amazing things about what was happening there, particularly for the time. One of the things that was happening at Azusa Street, which a lot of people at the time commented on in astonishment, was that there were white people and black people and Asian people and Hispanic people all together worshiping Jesus. Now, you have to understand that this is Jim Crow days. This is during the days of legalized segregation. This is in the days where you couldn't drink out of the same water fountain. Um, and, you know, but here they were, they were all together, experiencing this outpouring from God. And a lot of people remarked on that. And it was astonishing and to some people scandalizing. And you, you can just imagine how Charles Parham felt about this. <laughs> this was not what he intended. <laughs> and of course, basically, he became just a, a side note in the whole thing. Everybody was going to Azusa Street. They weren't going to Topeka, Kansas. They weren't interested in his school. And he basically spent out the rest of his days in kind of bitterness and anger that it went that way, that it all went with Brother Seymour and what he did out in Azusa Street instead of him. And the other interesting thing is that women also were equal participants in the whole thing. So a lot of times the women would be speaking and sharing equally with the men in the course of these prayer meetings and sharing prophetic words and praying for different people and sharing exhortations and writing and going to different cities and starting new prayer meetings. And this was 14 years before women in this country were allowed to vote. So when the Holy Spirit started working, he was like way ahead of everybody. <laughs> way, way ahead of everybody. Um, so that took us to uh, 1915. And that was the beginning then of the movement that we would call Pentecostalism. And they developed out of this over the, those years at Azusa Street and shortly thereafter a pretty sort of set um, sort of characteristics of Pentecostalism and their beliefs. Number one, that there's a second work of grace called baptism of the Holy Spirit, which brings to us the power of the Spirit. Number two, this second work of grace is shown by the gift of speaking in tongues. For the Pentecostals, they felt like, even though they saw all these other things that also were happening, they felt like the sort of initial, the starting, the sort of starting point, the evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is this gift of speaking in tongues. So there was a lot of emphasis on that particular gift. 
Number three, they taught this second work of grace should also result in a holy life expressed in classic holiness movement terms. So they didn't completely let go of that part of the holiness movement, um, but it became more secondary. But they did still kind of have a holiness movement mentality in that they were looking to live holy lives and they pretty much the way they expressed that holy living was expressed in very outward terms in terms of what was considered holy or worldly at the time. So smoking of cigarettes, drinking of alcohol, attendance at movies, attendance at dances were all things that were considered sinful and not holy. Those were worldly pursuits so if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, you were expected to stop all of that. Uh, women were not allowed to cut their hair. Men were not allowed to grow their hair. Um, a lot of times they had standards that women were not allowed to make, make, wear makeup or to wear jewelry, except brooches were allowed, but earrings were not. I don't know why. I can't explain it. And I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Um, so there's this, there's this kind of holiness thing that's a part of it. Number four, all the sign gifts are available today through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is very important because they did this in the teeth of near universal dispensationalism among all conservative uh, churches. Um, you know, the, the Baptists, some of the Methodists, most of the holiness churches... Um, a lot of those churches were very conservative in their theology, and they eventually became known as the evangelical churches. There were other churches, like the mainline Methodists, the, the Anglicans, the, the, the Presbyterians, the Church of Christ, the Congregationalists, who, were much, who, be, who had, had, had by that point become much more liberal in their interpretation of Scripture, much more skeptical about miracles. Those are the churches that became to be called, in American terms, the mainline churches. Um, um, so they didn't even necessarily believe in the Bible, so dispensationalism didn't touch them that much. The conservative evangelicals were almost all dispensational, though, and they were taught by dispensationalism that all the sign gifts had stopped. So the Pentecostals are the first, for the first time in... 1,500 years are emphasizing that the sign gifts are available through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and an important way, an important tool for how the church is actually supposed to reach the world and bring the world to Christ. Oddly enough, with the exception of that, the Pentecostalism fully embraced all the rest of the tenets of dispensationalism. So if you go to a Pentecostal church today, say an Assemblies of God church, they're completely dispensational except for the point about the sign gifts ceasing. Uh, so they still have all the dispensations. They, they still lay it all out the same way. They still believe in a pre-tribulation secret rapture followed by a seven-year tribulation followed by a second, second coming. Okay, the two second coming, the second second coming of Jesus, followed by the millennium, and so forth. Um, now, the Pentecostal Church had phenomenal growth. Um, it spread unbelievably fast. 
it split almost every uh, holiness denomination in existence. The denominations just split right down the middle. Although some of the holiness groups went lock, stock, and barrel over to Pentecostalism, most, but a lot of them split. So all your like Church of Gods, uh, you know, Church of God in Christ, uh, Nazarene churches, Assemblies of God, all of those, most of those are holiness churches, and some of them became Pentecostal. Um, they spread all over the world very quickly, uh, partly because they would be in these prayer meetings and they would be experiencing the power of the Spirit and people were experiencing supernatural calls to go to different places in the world to bring the message of Jesus and the message of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, there was, there was a, a couple of women, actually, who attended the, uh, the sort of Azusa-style prayer meeting in Chicago who in the prayer meeting, felt like God was calling them to go to a place called Para, P-A-R-A. And they had never heard of such a place. Uh, So they went to the Chicago Public Library and looked it up and discovered that it was a region in Brazil, in uh, northern Brazil. There's a particular region in Brazil that's called Para. And... and, uh, so as they continued to pray about this, feeling this call to go to Para, they felt like God eventually told them, go to New York City, go, to, uh, go on a certain day and a certain time, go to thus and so intersection, somebody will meet you there with the money you need to get a one-way steamer ticket to Para. So they did, and it happened. Just as predicted, somebody says, are you the two ladies who are supposed to go to par? And they said, yes, we are. Here you go. (laughs) And they went off to Para, Brazil. And, you know, 50 years later, there were a thousand Pentecostal churches in Para, Brazil. And that story was repeated thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Uh, uh, so it, it just went everywhere. Um, by about 1914, um, they began to feel that a great need to, you know, bring some order to this movement because it was utterly chaotic. It was, I don't know if I, how to describe it. It's just like utterly chaotic. It's just like all kinds of people going around like chickens with their heads cut off. You know, doing this and that, whatever they feel the Holy Spirit's leading them to do. There's no organization. There's no consistency. Um, You know, they're still trying to get their theology sorted out. They're still trying to understand what's happening here. They they didn't have established leadership. You know, and you can just imagine, you know, what's coming out of this. You know, rival prayer meetings and this and that. And so they started coalescing into different denominations and. It was in 1914 that a fairly large group of leaders from the Pentecostal movement met in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and formed the Assemblies of God. And that was probably the biggest, that was, would have been one of the bigger Pentecostal denominations. There were others like the Church of God and, and Church of God in Christ. Now, when they started doing this, that is when they split on racial lines. So when they got to 
uh, hot springs, there were leaders from the African-American community who were there at the meeting. But when it got time to organize everything, they were totally excluded. They weren't allowed to play a part, even though the whole thing started with them. And so they ended up in their own separate denomination, Church of God in Christ. And it was nearly a century before there was any kind of apology or reconciliation between the two groups. So at that point, the sort of racial harmony, racial togetherness thing that was happening at Azusa Street began to break up. And that also brought the Azusa Street prayer meeting itself to an end. Um, because there were two white ladies who developed, what shall we say, a crush on Brother Seymour, even though he was already married. And this became known, and it became a scandal um, that uh, two white women might want to be involved with an African-American man, even though I don't think there was ever any credible evidence of scandalous behavior on Brother Seymour's part, but it really shook him and divided the movement on racial lines. People started taking signs about that, and that pretty much killed the Azusa Street mission, at least the prayer meeting there at that time. So it was sort of one of those situations where the movement of the Spirit was ahead of what ultimately the country was willing to accept. And uh, it's, it's one of the tragedies, actually, of Pentecostalism. We came so close to saving this nation, so much pain, and missed it. And the church could have been in the lead, and we missed it. Um, and I don't know, what can you say? So, um, skip ahead a little bit, then about 40 years later, um, Pentecostalism um, had a major crisis within it, and in particular in the Assemblies of God, which was the, the uh, largest Pentecostal denomination. Um, and there developed a, a sort of new idea or a further idea of the basic Pentecostal theology that um, called Restorationism or sometimes called the Latter-day Rain Movement. And um, it basically split the movement down the end and let, down the middle. And let me just say a little bit about this. Restorationism began around 1948 in the mid-40s, and they believed that, number one, God will restore the church to its original power and purity through the work of recognized apostles and prophets. So whereas it was at Azusa Street, it was speaking in tongues and the recovery and experience with the Holy Spirit, Restorationism says, no, that's not enough. You need to have people, you need to restore the offices of apostle and prophet in the church. And the apostles and the prophets will be the ones who bring the church back 
to the power and the glory and the purity that, rep, that we see represented in the book of Acts, which is kind of a selective reading of the book of Acts because when you look at the book of Acts, they're not all that unified and they're not all that pure and they're not always that powerful. <laughs> but if you compress it and leave out certain bits, <laughs> you can have that conclusion. They believe, number two, that the restoration of the church depends on the rise of, in particular, very powerful apostles and prophets. So you start looking for superstars. You're, it, it's, 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 like, it, it's all dependent on the rise of these superstars. It's come a long ways from the day when Brother Seymour has got his head under, under a, a box so nobody will look at him. And now it's all about, we're looking for the super apostles and the super prophets. They believe, number three, that this restoration will lead to a great last days revival in which millions of people spontaneously come to faith through great works of power done by the apostles and prophets. So they're, they're, they're looking for this final great revival of spontaneous evangelism where there's so much power in the church that people just see this power and they're all converted. And I think it's kind of interesting because, it's an interesting theory because all I can say is the Pharisees saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb and went home and plotted how to kill Jesus. <laughs> um, so it's not an automatic um, by any means. They believed then that this great revival would immediately precede the second coming of Christ. So if you could get these get enough power in the church and get these apostles and prophets to a certain place and stage with enough power in the church, you could uh, trigger this great revival and bring about the second coming of Christ. And the way they propose to do that is continual day and night prayer, which is necessary for this restoration to happen. 24 hours day and night prayer is the deal. So, 24-hour prayer was, of course, not entirely new. That's what was happening at Azusa Street for the first six years. But it's got a whole new reason for happening now. And you'll probably, as you go through this list, realize this sounds a little familiar, perhaps, to some of you who've been around. This might sound a little familiar to you, this restoration thing. So if you go to the International House of Prayer... This is what you will hear, because that is where they're coming from. They are restorationists, and they are coming from that theological perspective. Now, some of the restorationists really went kind of off the deep end. One of them, one of the more powerful ones of them, a guy named William Branham, eventually claiming that we, are, we could all become little gods. And... Um, so forth. Um, but there were other problems with it. And one of the problems here is that this, this theology is death to evangelism and church planning. Because if there's going to be a big bang at the end, why bother? You see, why bother if there's a big bang at the end? Why, why get to know your neighbors? Why pray for your friends? Why talk to them about Jesus? There's going to be a big bang at the end. All you need to do is go to the church and pray more. 
And so it is deadly, ultimately, to evangelism and church planning. And there was a period of time, jumping ahead a little bit, when through a relationship that John Wimber had, some restorationist people through a guy named Mike Bickle, who had a church in Kansas City um, at the time, had, an in, had sort of an, a platform to speak into the vineyard movement, and they brought this idea, restorationism, into our midst. In the end, we rejected it. And I, I don't know if everybody in the vineyard understood that was what was happening, but in the end, they, they rejected it. In fact, John Wimber told me about, he's sitting in one meeting where they're all sitting around talking about who's going to be the big apostle, and they all conclude, we've all concluded that the, the last day's apostles for us is John Wimber. And they all look at John, and he says, well, there's just one big problem with that. And they said, what? He says, I don't believe any of this stuff. <laughs> he never believed any of it. Um, John Wimber was about everybody gets to play, which was a Quaker idea, that the Holy Spirit's in everybody. His idea was, no, to take the ministry of the Holy Spirit and give it out to common people to get away from the superstar thing and make it everybody's. It was the exact opposite impulse of restorationism. Um, so, um, interestingly, when this happened uh, in the Assemblies of God, it split the Assemblies of God. They... In, they had about 1,200 churches before the split. And in the split, about 600 churches went with the Restorationists, and about 600 churches stayed with the Assemblies of God. And uh, the 600 churches who went with the Restorationists focused basically on meet, meetings and conferences where they were praying and looking for these tremendous works of power for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would sort of be a part of triggering this great big bang at the end. And they had very powerful meetings and saw tremendous miracles. Um, some of them just almost unbelievable. In fact, just between you and me, I don't believe all of them. <laughs> Nevertheless, there were lots of real genuine miracles that were in their midst. They... they did uh, function very, very powerfully and had extremely powerful meetings. But as I already said, evangelism and church planning stopped dead cold. The Assemblies of God backed away from that emphasis on powerful meetings and works of power and began to focus more decidedly, more Focusly on doing evangelism and church planting. And they still believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They still taught that. They, they still had camp meetings. People still had experiences with the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't their main agenda. Their main agenda was to do missions and to plant churches. And they planted churches in the United States and they started missions in almost every other country of the world. And if you fast forward to today, the Assemblies of God has over 12,000 churches in the United States alone. They went from 600 to 12,000. They have 3 million members in the United States and 67 million members overseas. 
in the assemblies of God. Meanwhile, the Restorationist churches eventually started calling themselves the Elam Pentecostal churches. And today, there are about 500 Elam Pentecostal churches who actually, in point of fact, no longer even have the powerful meetings that they had back in the 40s and 50s because their children didn't react to it in the same way. And I simply ask, which is better? Which would you rather be a part of? Now see, the restorationists will tell you that it's all about just the power works that the, the sign things alone are going to do it all. That's one of their fallacies. And, but it, it's not borne out in actual practice. In fact, it works just the opposite. And there's a lot of restorationism still out and about in sort of the general charismatic uh, Pentecostal world even now. And it's kind of important to be aware of where they're coming from and why and what their history is. Um, so that was in the 40s and 50s. But in 1960, something happened that nobody expected, except God, again. Now, the thing about Pentecostalism, the Pentecostal movement from Azusa Street to 1960 was that it mostly spread among the former holiness churches and among lower classes uh, in America. Uh, people who were not as well educated, people who were not as wealthy, it was mostly made up of those groups of people, uh, not working class kind of people. Um, Lots of African Americans from underclass, definitely at that point of time, you know, were Pentecostals. So that was that characterized the Pentecostal movement, and most of America treated the Pentecostal movement as sort of uh, a little bit of a carnival sideshow, off in sort of the wider world of the church. Uh, look at the strange things those people from the wrong side of the tracks are doing. And um, it had really no impact among your mainline churches, your, your Episcopal or Methodist or Congregationalist churches, and it also had no impact among conservative evangelical churches, your Baptists and so forth. Uh, didn't touch them at all. And for the mainline churches, it was more because of a class thing. They just felt like this is beneath our dignity. These people, you know, roll around in the aisles. In fact, they called them holy rollers because they literally rolled. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to me because I can't remember one point in our church. We had one guy in our church who was very dignified and nothing ever happened to him when people prayed for him. He was one of those guys, you know, you can get your best people, they all pray for him, and he stands there like a rock and feels nothing, experiences nothing, nothing ever happens to him. Except one Sunday in the worship, the guy got zapped by the Holy Spirit, and he was literally rolling down our aisle. And I thought, there it is, we're holy rollers. And it's the one guy that everybody least expected. <laughs> 
So, you know, mainline kind of looked down on sort of, they kind of looked at the outward manifestations and were just kind of put off by it. Because it was, it, you, know, you know, sometimes, you know, when the Holy Spirit gets out of the box, it gets kind of messy. And uh, the conservative evangelicals weren't interested in the Pentecostal movement because they strenuously objected to the theology of Pentecostalism. And there were, there were several problems that they had with Pentecostal theology. One of them was that the whole idea, the foundational idea of a, sec- a separate second work of grace that came after conversion. Um, you really had to read that into the scripture. It, it's not clearly stated in the Bible. You, you kind of have to read that into it. And so, obviously, that's an objection. And um, so they didn't like that part of it. They weren't so sure about the emphasis on speaking in tongues. Um, that felt particularly controversial and um, really objected to that. They didn't quite understand why that should be important as opposed to all the other things. And there was, an, uh, uh, there was another theological problem that Pentecostal had that in particular evangelical, uh, conservative evangelicals were tuned into, and that was that the Pentecostals tied works like healing they only understood to tie that to this experience of baptism of the Holy Spirit and the operation of faith. That you had to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you had to have faith to be healed. And that healing came out of faith and kind of faith primarily. Which, if you take it to its logical conclusion, then you end up in kind of the health, wealth, and prosperity kind of group of people who say, well, if you just have enough faith, you can always be healed. They didn't have an answer for what happens when you're not. What happens when you're not healed? They couldn't answer, their theology couldn't answer that question. And so that was a big tripping point. And so it never really touched the conservative evangelicals. So it was something that worked among the holiness movement people, and the uh, lower classes of America. But in 1960, there was an Episcopalian priest named Dennis Bennett, who, interestingly, was pastoring a church not 20 miles from Azusa Street in Van Nuys, Nuys, California. Now, I'm I'm not sure how tuned in you guys are to this, but... The Episcopalian Church represents the sort of snobby up a crust of America, or at least it used to, until Dennis Bennett messed it all up. But um, they used to kind of represent that. So if you go back, like the list of all the presidents of America and what, what church they were from, there's an awful lot of Episcopalians in that list. You know, if you wanted to be dignified and rub shoulders with other rich people like yourself and sophisticated and educated people, you went to the Episcopalian church who had, you know, you know, their smells and their bells and their rituals, but it was very predictable and nothing funny, no funny business ever went on. And so this is who Dennis Bennett is. And he had a group in his church who were getting together um, uh, studying spiritual growth. And he had gotten a hold 
of a book by an Assemblies of God pastor, a Pentecostal pastor named David Wilkerson, called Crossing the Switchblade, which is about how God used him to minister to, uh, at that time, mostly Puerto Rican gangs and addicts in New York City during the 50s. And in this book, there's a whole chapter on baptism in the Holy Spirit and how that changes your life. And Dennis Bennett was intrigued by this and began thinking about this. And so, um, what happened was, on Easter Sunday, 1960, Dennis Bennett stood up in his proper Anglican, dignified Episcopalian church and announced that he had been baptized in the Holy Spirit and was speaking in tongues. Whereupon, they fired him. (laughs) They weren't going to have any of that in their church. But that left the Episcopalian church with a problem because, of course, you know, they have an Episcopalian system. And, you know, we've got this priest, where are we going to put him? And the bishop says, what am I going to do with this guy? And so there was this dying, almost dead Episcopal church up in Seattle called St. Luke's. And so they all got together and they agreed, okay, we'll send him up there. He can't harm anybody. He won't make any trouble up there. So they send him up to St. Luke's, and he goes up there, and people, the few people left there start experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They start experiencing the Holy Spirit for the first time. Their faith is revitalized. For many of them, it was like meeting Jesus for the first time. And the church starts growing like crazy. All of a sudden, their little dying parish is the biggest parish in the diocese. And people are flooding in and they can't fit all the people in the doors because people start coming. So he writes this book called Nine O'Clock in the Morning reporting his story and his experience and how when they embraced this work of the Holy Spirit, their little dying church was suddenly revitalized and began to grow. And one of the things about that is the 50s were over, we're in the 60s, and people stopped going to church because you're supposed to. So a lot of churches are dying. And so if somebody finds a way to avoid that, like that's very interesting. So this book just goes crazy. Everybody starts buying it. And all kinds of Episcopalians and then Congregationalists and Methodists and Lutherans all start getting into the act. They all think, well, if the Episcopalians can do it, we can too. It must be dignified now. And so all of a sudden, you've got, you know, the Episcopal Renewal Service and the Lutheran Renewal Service, and they're all, they start doing these conferences, and people are getting together, and they're experiencing the Holy Spirit, and people are speaking in tongues. It's like Azusa Street all over again. And so, uh, and that's mostly among mainline churches. But the Baptists and the other conservative evangelicals, they're not having any of it. First of all, it's from an Episcopalian. We're not even sure they're Christians. You know, let alone, you know, doing this other stuff. You know, so not the conservative, it didn't touch them at all. They were not at all interested. But a lot of the mainline churches had big chunks of their people and their leaders 
who were interested and who were impacted. And that basically became known as the charismatic movement. They, they had to make up a new name for it because they couldn't be Pentecostals because Pentecostal meant wrong side of the tracks. So they took a Greek word that means gifts and made it charismatic and called it the charismatic movement, and so that makes it okay. It was a classic marketing strategy. And so that's how we got what is now called the charismatic movement. But it's really Pentecostalism, but heading a new group of people under a new label. And later on, when sociologists started writing about this, they said, okay, Azusa Street and that immediate aftermath, that's the first wave of the Spirit coming to the church. And the charismatic movement hitting the mainline churches on all those guys, that's the second wave. Then everybody was in for another big surprise. Because Dennis Bennett's book, and also Cross on the Switchblade, David Wilkerson's book, had made its way into the hands of some students at a Catholic university, at Duquesne University. Roman Catholics were reading this book. And in 1967, a group of these students at this school went on a retreat run by the Holy Spirit Sisters, the Holy Spirit Missionary Sisters, I believe it was, which should have been a warning right up front where this is going. <laughs> and you're going on a retreat with the Holy Spirit Missionary Sisters, and you're reading Cross in the Switchblade at 9 o'clock in the morning. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> and sure enough, those students have their own experience of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and all of a sudden, now Roman Catholics are getting into the act. And I actually can remember when this happened. Now, you have to understand, I grew up in the Assemblies of God. My father was an AG pastor. My grandfather was an AG pastor. We grew up, we thought maybe the Baptists were saved. But we were pretty sure the Catholics and the Episcopalians and those people were not because they drank and smoked. And if you were saved, you didn't do that. We see. So all of a sudden, the Episcopalians and the Catholics are speaking in tongues, which is the initial evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So that poses for the Pentecostals a huge theological problem. It's sort of like Peter with Cornelius. Sort of like, if the Holy Spirit has filled these people, how can we say they don't belong? So, like, all of a sudden, Pentecostals all around the world are having to backpedal. And when this hit the Catholic charismatic movement, it spread even faster. First of all, there were a lot more Catholics. And second of all, they didn't have any particular of the... They, didn't, they weren't dispensational. They didn't even know, they never heard of such a thing. You know, they had none of those hang-ups. Um, and so pretty soon, all across America, almost every major city and an awful lot of small cities had Catholic charismatic meetings that would meet in the middle of the week, and they would, and literally thousands of Catholics would gather together on a weekly basis 
and they would worship Jesus and wait for the movement of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit came, they would all begin singing and praying and speaking in tongues and then begin prophesying and healing each other and doing all the works of the Holy Spirit. And the nuns and the priests, they all got part of it. And we all used to have this little ditty that said, Mary had a little lamb and it became a charismatic nun, died from lack of sleep. And there was a really big one in Minneapolis that I used to go to as a college student. And it was electric. It was just electric. I, I mean, you just can't imagine because the ear are all, all these people who've been dutiful Catholics all their lives just doing the thing, not ever having an experience of their own, thinking that this kind of stuff only happened to saints And all of a sudden, it's happening to their brother and their sister and their neighbor and, you know, the mechanic and ordinary people. And by 1970, okay, so we're talking a span of three years. Three years. By 1970, they were having their annual international gathering of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal in St. Peter's in Rome. And there were cardinals that were joining in with them. And in fact, the current pope, Pope Francis, was one of the cardinals heavily involved with the Catholic Charismatic Renewal back in the day in Argentina. So if you want to know where the man is coming from, He's coming out of this renewal that God began in 1967. And, of course, then what happened was the Orthodox, who have been kind of watching all this from afar, when the Catholics started doing this, decided, well, if the Catholics can do it, then we can do it too. And so... All of a sudden, there's even Orthodox people who basically haven't changed much of anything in 1,500 years. I mean, they're, they make the Catholics look Protestant. Okay. In, I mean, like, you haven't seen liturgy if you've only gone to a Catholic church. You know, they make them look Protestant. They are doing the same thing. Worshiping Jesus and waiting for the movement of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, they're speaking in tongues and they're doing miracles and healing the sick and casting out demons and the whole thing. One of my great experiences in my life was being there with a Coptic Orthodox priest in Garbage City in Cairo, Egypt, as he cast a demon out in front of a congregation of 2,000 people, most of them converted from Islam which they let him do because they were the poorest of the poor that nobody cared about. Um, so what that meant is that now the whole run of the church, of the whole church universal, has been touched by what happened at Azusa Street, except the Baptists and the conservative evangelicals who are treating it like, you know, it's Dracula. But then came the Jesus movement, right on the tail end 
right, right after the charismatic movement and the, and the Roman Catholics. And the Jesus movement, interestingly, was made up of people coming from both sides of this thing. Um, the classic Pentecostals and some of the charismatic people. And again, it happened in Los Angeles. It's, that's where it started, in Los Angeles. Um, there was a guy named Chuck Smith who was leading what was then a, a, a Pentecostal church at the time, a classic Pentecostal church, but who had already been somewhat influenced by the charismatic movement. And there were some other people who had been influenced by the charismatic movement. And they all of a sudden realized, we can take this thing to the hippies who were now emerging as a force in America. The hippie movement was fully going and... Just to clarify, I may not look like it on the outside, but I'm still a hippie on the inside. <laughs> and so um, all kinds of young people started being impacted by the work of the Holy Spirit and coming to faith in Jesus. And one of the things about this is that it came at a time the late 60s and early 70s, when the country was ripped to pieces. Um, it looks to me like some of you are old enough to remember what I'm talking about. Uh, that there, there was hardly a city in America where there weren't riots. You know, the, the kind of thing that we've been seeing in the news lately, you know, in Missouri was actually happening everywhere. And there was a lot of tension and division, partly over the Vietnam War, partly over the Civil Rights Movement, um, we've had numerous political assassinations over the last five years. I mean, we were a country in turmoil. And in that place, there was a vacuum. Uh, sort of all the things that were certain in the 50s and the early 60s were no longer there. Everything had changed. And the kind of music that people listened to had changed. And the kind of clothes that people wore had changed. And the way they wanted to do their hair and cut, and the, et cetera, had all changed. Uh, sort of in response to what was happening on um, larger scale. Um, so when people are in those kind of times, they often turn for spiritual something. And a lot of people turned to Eastern religions. Um, that was the beginning of sort of the influence of Eastern religion in this country and what we would now probably call New Age stuff. It all started in that time. But much bigger than all of that was that a lot of people uh, started turning back to Jesus. And it was because these guys, these few people who came together in Southern California figured out that we can have the same message if we will just allow, change the dress code and the music code and let them worship Jesus in their own language. And if they can worship Jesus in their own language, so to speak, with the music that they're used to and dress the way that they're used to, come as you are, they can accept the same message. And so they, they didn't change anything internally. The basic gospel was still the same. What they were preaching was still the same. The way that they were looking to the Holy Spirit was the same as it was in Pentecostalism or, or the charismatic movement. But all of a sudden, instead of everybody getting dressed up to go to church, they came in their sandals. 
And instead of singing the old hymns out of the Pentecostal hymnal, they started singing rock and roll. And in the beginning, they just took rock and roll tunes and put them to the Psalms. We just, the first few years of the Jesus movement, we just sang the Bible. Um, you know, there, we have, they weren't like making up a whole lot of other songs at first. It was just like sing the Bible, and, but do it with rock and roll or what, what we would now call folk rock. You know, uh, well, that's what my African-American friends, they call it folk music. Um, and that was revolutionary. And literally within about five years, probably about two million young people under the age of 30 came to faith across the country. And thousands upon thousands of new churches were started. The one I'm leading is one of those churches that were started in the Jesus movement. Um, so one of the people who got involved with the Jesus movement, two, there are two people actually that are important. One of them is a guy named Ken Gullickson, and he was one of the first pastors really to be significantly involved with the Jesus movement. Ken Gullickson is his name. And he started a church in Hollywood uh, in uh, 1975. So towards the end of that. He had been involved with Calvary Chapel, which is what the main group that had initiated uh, the Jesus movement stuff in Southern California, although it quickly spread everywhere. And um, it was in his church that Keith Green came to faith in Christ. It was in his church that Bob Dylan either came to Christ or didn't or whatever happened to Bob Dylan. Um, um, you know, so but that got him a lot of attention, um, and uh, the other person was John Wimber. Now, interestingly, John Wimber had not come from a church background. John Wimber came from a completely unchurched uh, family, uh, just basically pagans. Um, he was a musician and a songwriter. Uh, was uh, working in Las Vegas um, most of the time. Uh, his marriage was falling apart, but he knew a guy who was associated with one of the renewed or reformed Quaker churches, which would be a Quaker church that has be had become more conservative evangelical in its ways than sort of your classic Quaker church, in that they actually had preaching and they had leaders and so forth. And through this man's Bible study, John Wimber was brought to faith in Christ. And eventually um, led a whole lot of people to the Lord within the Quaker church. But eventually the, the Quaker church couldn't tolerate the fact that he was bringing so many people to Jesus and they weren't Quakers. And they were messing up their little church. And... So he left and joined in with Calvary Chapel. And then for a while, he ended up working uh, for the Fuller Evangelistic Service, consulting uh, around the world um, about church growth and how to build churches and how to help churches grow and so forth. And he traveled all over. But eventually, that kind of ran out of gas about 1975, right around the time Gullickson was starting his church, which he called Vineyard, based on a verse that he got from the Bible. 
in the book of Isaiah. And um, so John Wimber was kind of uh, at a point of spiritual dryness and a crisis. And he and his wife started a prayer meeting in their home just trying to recover their initial love of Jesus who had saved them and rescued their marriage and you know they'd gotten kind of all involved in all the church politics and all the stuff and lost track of Jesus. So they just wanted to get back to Jesus. And in that place, they began to encounter for the first time the Holy Spirit. And now the Quaker church that they were a part of was dispensational and cessationist in outlook, which meant they believed that the Holy Spirit didn't heal today and that if you spoke in tongues, it wasn't genuine, that it was the devil. So God doesn't heal the sick and God doesn't cast out demons and God doesn't prophesy or give visions and dreams, but the devil does. So all of a sudden, John Wimmer's wife, Carol, is speaking in tongues and he thinks, oh no, the devil's got her. But she was praying over him in his sleep, and pretty soon he started speaking in tongues. And then he thought, oh no, the devil's got me. <laughs> uh, so they're coming from that background. Uh, long story short, they were, they were soon not welcome in the Quaker church because they couldn't stop this thing. It started spreading. And so at that point, they found a safe haven with Calvary Chapel the Jesus movement. So what happens there is they take Quakerism. Now, just to remind you, sort of the Quaker mentality was that the spirit is in everyone and that everybody can, partace, can participate and there's almost no hierarchy in the church. And it's, it's like as far away from the superstar th circuit as you can possibly get. And um, so... They bring that, and then they have this other thing from the charismatic, you know, Jesus movement thing, and they bring it together. And they start, they start a new church in uh, 1977, another Calvary Chapel in Anaheim, California. But before too long, there's a particular day, a Mother's Day, where there's this outbreak of the Holy Spirit in their church. Because by this time, Calvary Chapel is backing away from sort of, sort of the more extreme expressions of the Holy Spirit. Because by this point in time, the Jesus movement has spun off a lot of cults as well as legitimate churches. Um, quite a few of them, and in particular in Southern California. So in the face of that, they start dialing back on anything where you're evaluating things on purely an experiential basis. They wanted to basically get back to, we're going to just emphasize the Bible and try to keep people on track and started dialing back on sort of the let's see what the Holy Spirit's going to do kind of thing, which is what characterized the early meetings. They wanted to reduce the chaos, so to speak. Um, but anyway, they invited this guy named Lonnie Frisbee to speak at their church on Mother's Day evening, and he said, you know, the Holy Spirit hasn't always been as welcome in the church as he should be, but I think he's willing to forgive, and he wants to come back tonight, and he invited all their young people, which happened to be like two-thirds of the church, to the front, and he invited the Holy Spirit to come, and they all ended up falling on the ground and flopping like fish and yelling in tongues. 
And a couple things started happening around that. Um, Around that time, and you'll have to read Quest for the Radical Middle to get the exact sequence, um, John started preaching about healing, although they weren't seeing much healing because it was in the Bible. And they eventually did start seeing a lot more healing. And he needed a way to understand healing and also how to understand when people weren't healed. And Pentecostal theology wasn't working. And dispensational theology would certainly not work. So he needed something else. And he came across uh, the teaching of uh, another professor from Fuller Seminary named George Ladd about the, the kingdom of God. And the idea that there's this present evil age that we live in, where you know death and brokenness and sickness and war and conflict and all has free reign. Basically, the god of this world, the devil, is in control. And then there's this future age when the kingdom of God comes back to earth, and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And and. In that age, everything that's wrong now will be made right. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and they will beat their swords into plowshares, and the lion will lie down with the lamb, and they will neither harm nor destroy in all God's holy mountain. And there's this future age coming when finally, at long last, what God wants for us will finally be done on earth. And what George Land said is that when Jesus came, he brought this age of the future and invaded this present evil age. And the coming of the kingdom started then. And that we now live in a time where, as it were, the two ages overlap. The age that we live in now, the age of brokenness and sickness and conflict and hate and all that stuff, but there's the other age, the kingdom of God, is here at work, beginning its process of taking the world back for Jesus. And when we heal the sick, that is the work of the kingdom. That's the manifestation of the kingdom of God. But because the two ages overlap, it doesn't always work. There's like a battle going on. God's will is not always done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. Not everybody's sick. So all of a sudden, you have a theology for failure. You understand? The the answer, you don't have to say they didn't get healed because they didn't have enough faith. You You can now say, well, they didn't get healed just because we live in this time of conflict and it doesn't always work. But, the, but God is here, and he is working, and a lot of people do get healed. Just not always. Not all of them, because it's not fully here. And by that, that is where the phrase comes that is so important in the vineyard, the already and the not yet. It's already here, but not yet fully. Which solved a problem Pentecostal theology could never solve. Also, in the process of that, by switching to that theology, the whole question about 
baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace disappears. Because actually John operated under a Quaker mentality, which is that as a, as a Quaker, you have the idea that as a believer, the Holy Spirit is in you, and you have many experiences with the Holy Spirit, and you're always waiting for the move of the Spirit to happen. And there's not like one watershed point, but it's actually a whole way of life of depending on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he can say, baptism, which means initiation, happens when you get saved because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps you get saved. And so that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that solved a big problem for guess who? The Baptists and the conservative evangelicals. Because two of the biggest barriers to them opening up to the work of the Holy Spirit the barrier about the faith question and the barrier about the second work of grace, baptism of the Holy Spirit, are resolved by switching to a completely different theological system, um, the kingdom of God theology. So what started happening then is John started teaching a class at Fuller Seminary called Signs and Wonders and Church Growth, which articulated this theology and connected the ministry of the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders to that theology, which had never happened before. And out of that, then, came the Vineyard Movement and also the opening of the whole conservative wing of the church to the movement of the Holy Spirit. So when John Wimber started teaching this class and started ministering, all of a sudden... Baptists and E-Free and other conservative evangelicals from all over the country all of a sudden began to be a part of experiencing what started at Azusa Street, and they called that the third wave of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, Vineyard started as a movement in 1977 with um, John's church, Initially, it was a Calvary Chapel. I won't go into the story about how it became a vineyard, uh, except to say that eventually John's new emphasis and the theology posed a problem for Calvary Chapel because Calvary Chapel is dispensational in theology. And they understood these aren't going to fit together. And they said, you need to go somewhere else. And they suggested, why don't you go join in with this guy, Gullickson, over here, who's got three churches and join in with him, I think you'll fit well with him. And so they met together, and Gullickson said, sure, go ahead and be a part of it. And while you're at it, why don't you just lead us? <laughs> and so um, that's how it became the Vineyard Movement, because we took the name started by Ken Gullickson when John Wimber's church joined in with them. And when he did, a whole bunch of Calvary chapels who'd been influenced by John Wimber also came and became a part of it and joined in with it, and that started the Vineyard Movement. But uh, because of the impact that John had on a whole lot of conservative evangelicals, and the fact that they were now being a part of this and coming to, that's where many of our Vineyard pastors came from. So our current Vineyard pastors, uh, a huge proportion of them, not all of them by any means, but a big proportion of them came out of conservative evangelical backgrounds, Baptist backgrounds, 
And when they heard this theology, that we could have the Holy Spirit with a theology that has integrity with the Bible, they said, I want in. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And that gave rise to the vineyard. So, characteristics of the vineyard, kingdom of God theology, not dispensational, which is very important to understand in the whole flow of where we fit. Number two, and I alluded to this last night, worship and preaching equally important. So we straddle in that the Catholic-Protestant divide. Number three, scripture and spirit are both important. Again, straddling the Catholic-Protestant divide. Number four, mind and spirit, both important. Same story. Mysticism and teaching equal. So we, we're, we're like, you'll see in the vineyard all kinds of people doing spiritual retreats and meditation and you know, like Ignatian exercises and spiritual direction and all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, quoting Spurgeon and other classic um, you know, uh, conservative evangelical preachers. And, you know, doing the work of the mind and thinking about theology and how do you work that out and how does that mean? And doing it together. Um, uh, one of the classics of Vineyard is the idea that it's kind of like having two arms, that life just works better with both of them rather than choosing one over the other. Um, physical and philosophical approaches to spirituality are equal. So, you know, if you... if there's a certain kind of physicality to a lot of what we do in our ministry. We're, we're praying over people and touching them. It's very physical, sens sensing kind of experience. And in our worship, what's, part of what's unique about our worship, I don't know if you understand this, is that when we worship, we expect to experience something. You see? This uh, reminds me of, uh, so one time this other church, I think I forget who they were. They were a conservative evangelical church in our area. They came to us and they said, we want your worship. So my worship leader, my worship pastor said, okay, here you go. Here's all the songs. Here's the sheets. Here's the leads. Here's the, here's the notes. You know, here's, here, here's the words. Take it. So I took it all. And they came back a couple months later and said, why doesn't it work for us the same way as you? <laughs> and he says, oh, because it's not the music. It's not the music. And they said, what is it? And he says, oh, well, we expect the Holy Spirit to be at work when we worship and expect to experience him while we're worshiping. And it's that openness and that expectation to the Holy Spirit that makes it work. You see? So, you know, for us, those go together. Um, number six, power through empowerings, not one second work of grace. So in the vineyard, our deal is, you know, like, you, you have many experiences with the Holy Spirit. You know, um, hopefully as many as you need. <laughs> um, and that uh, you might need repeat fillings of the Holy Spirit because, of course, we all leak. Um, it, it's sort of, we're not, there's not this emphasis on one sort of experience that sort of divides this group from that group. But it's more like we're all on a journey of trying to learn to live in partnership with the Holy Spirit, who is a person and who lives in us and with us and through us. You know, and that's what we're doing. Um, uh, so that's what we're looking for. And so in that sense, we're not Pentecostal. So people say, are you a Pentecostal group? 
The answer is, well, not really. If they say, are you an evangelical group? Well, the answer is, well, not really. Are you a Catholic group? Not really. Are you a Protestant? Well, sort of, but not. Are you Quaker? Well, sort of, but not. <laughs> you, you see the picture? All right. Seven, baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens at salvation. Eight, salvation is both personal and communal. Number nine, this is really important. Kingdom work is not just personal salvation, but also restoration of life and justice in society. Uh, one of the things that John Wimber's theological shift enabled us to do is to reunite two things that had gotten separated in most American Christianity, which is the idea of individual conversion being born again and the idea of the need to have uh, to be involved in making our nation, our society, our communities better. Uh, it had become a deal where sort of you were either a social activist or you believed in conversion, and the two were not ever together. But the kingdom of God theology allows those to come back together and function together in a way that is more true to the teachings of Jesus than the divide that had been there before. So for us, kingdom of God work is not even just salvation, and it's not just healing. It's not just signs and wonders in that classic sense, but also restoration of life and justice in society. So when we are over here giving out food to the hungry, we are doing the work of the kingdom. Just as surely as when we're in here laying hands on the sick. We are doing the work of the kingdom. Okay. Okay, so Vineyard Movement comes along. The Baptist conservative evangelicals become a part of all that, and that becomes the third wave of what began at Azusa Street. And again, this starts in the Los Angeles area. So you see there's three major waves, and they all and if you count the Jesus movement, four major ways, all starting in Southern California. It's sort of like God says, I'm going to see if anybody notices. <laughs> Let's play a game of, you know, is God at work? And see if anybody notices. And so um, what happened there, finally, with the coming of John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement was that the last holdouts, as it were, of the church universal to what started at Azusa Street finally got to be a part of it. And that means in one century, one century, we went from Agnes Osman in Topeka, Kansas, to every single corner of the Church of Jesus rediscovering the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the kingdom of God in a whole new way. And at this point in time, there are best estimates that if you put them all together, there are something like 500 million Pentecostals Charismatics and third wave people who are, you know, participating in this work of the Holy Spirit all over the world. That is one quarter of the entire 
uh, church, all the people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And that is where we came from. <laughs>